listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to Belabored number 62. So we kick off this week with some exciting news from the other side of the planet. Large sectors of the city of Hong Kong are shut down. Streets are filled with protesters, mostly young folks, students, pro-democracy activists, and um, increasingly this week, labor unions. We got word from the Hong Kong Confederation of Trade Unions uh, that as of uh, this recording on Wednesday, about 10,000 workers uh, across the island have downed their tools from multiple sectors, from uh, industrial workers to teachers, service workers, and they are calling for fully free and fair elections with universal suffrage. Um, In case you haven't been following the news, this is all the result of a decree from Beijing that basically uh, forbids the independent selection of candidates. Um, So whoever people will be voting for in the first supposedly free election in 2017 will be handpicked by Beijing. Needless to say, young people who um, are part of the new generation of a former colony of Britain that has never really experienced democracy before um, are, are a little bit impatient about this, and so they took to the streets with a movement called Hashtag Occupy Central. It's gotten a lot of international solidarity, and today, uh, labor is bringing up the rear. They are coming out in solidarity with folks, and they're calling on unions around the world to um, take action in solidarity with them. Uh, There is uh, talk about a general strike, and things seem poised to escalate because Beijing shows no signs of wanting to yield to any of their demands. So hats off to the unions and the students and the other youth in Hong Kong who are making their voice heard against authoritarian capitalism in Beijing. But I thought China was communist, Michelle. Um, <laughs> with a capital C. <laughs> Ooh, that'll be a debate for another time, right? <laughs> and by debate, we mean we'll let Michelle explain these things to us. So back here in the good old U.S. of A., where uh, capitalism reigns supreme, certainly, Teach for America is a program you've heard us talk about on this podcast before. Teach for America has made its name recruiting young college grads from elite institutions of higher education to go teach in urban public schools, not as unionized teachers, but as a quick and low-paying resume highlight on along their career path. So what happens if those elite students wise up to the game and start saying no? Uh, this week, Julianne Hang at Color Lines reports that students at schools, in, including Harvard, Vanderbilt, the University of Michigan, and McAllister College, are launching a campaign to demand TFA reform or that it be thrown off their campuses, which is, of course, where it does most of its recruiting. The campaign is affiliated with the United Students Against Sweatshops, which sent a letter to TFA last week that says, in part, TFA's shift from an organization providing volunteers to overcome teacher shortages to an organization that deprofessionalizes the teaching career and displaces veteran teachers has forced us as students to ask our universities to reconsider their relationship with Teach for America. Their demands include that TFA send its recruits to places with actual teacher shortages, not to places like Chicago, where veteran teachers have been laid off even as TFA floods in, that TFA train its recruits better and for longer than the current five weeks before sending them into the classroom, and three, that it stop partnering with corporations like J.P. Morgan and ExxonMobil. 
As Hing notes, many of those partner corporations offer deferrals to new hires who decide to do TFA before going to their fancy corporate job. It also partners with business law and medical schools, as well as actual education programs, to grant deferrals for people who go into TFA thereby encouraging those erstwhile teachers to go into more lucrative fields, perpetuating the teacher shortage they profess to want to halt. At heart, the students say their opposition to TFA is about the continued corporatization of public schools and its contribution to driving out experienced unionized teachers. One Vanderbilt University sophomore had personal experience with TFA at her Charlotte, North Carolina high school. She said, I had some teachers via TFA who weren't competent and didn't really know their subject matter and what was happening and who just weren't very good teachers. So we will keep you updated on what happens if TFA actually gets kicked off campuses. And back in New York and also in Los Angeles, uh, there's been a flurry of action on living wage and minimum wage measures on the state and local level. We've been reporting on those for a few months now. Um, New York City recently, thanks to an executive order signed by Mayor Bill de Blasio, recently boosted its living wage law. Now, this is the base wage that applies to workers who are working for contractors and subcontractors of the city on various economic development projects, things like the um, the you know various uh, sort of subsidized construction projects, um, different businesses that got certain subsidies from from the city in order to help bring local jobs. And so the idea is that if they're receiving city money, then the city should have some sway in terms of making sure that those workers are treated marginally well. So um, it's a pretty significant expansion of the living wage law. It will um, it, it's especially beneficial to workers who currently do not receive benefits, they will get a raise of about 10% to $13.13 an hour um, overall. The modification of uh, the wage law, which, by the way, former Mayor Michael Bloomberg um, steadily opposed throughout his tenure, um, it now expands the coverage to about 18,000 employees across the city. Um, that's about 70% of all the jobs at businesses that receive um, economic development financing from the city of New York. Um, but when you think about it in terms of the overall New York workforce, that's really just a drop in the bucket. Nonetheless, it's an important symbol, and it can add pressure to um, the Cuomo administration to, A, uh, you know, put some energy behind a statewide initiative to raise the minimum wage from the um uh, to a you know relatively paltry ten dollars and ten cents an hour, but still a raise nonetheless. Definitely higher than the federal minimum, which is unconscionably low at seven dollars and twenty five cents an hour. Um, moreover, um, it's going to uh, add pressure to the Cuomo administration to grant New York City and other localities the autonomy to set their own minimum wages, so that they don't have to depend on our horribly corrupt um, system in Albany to do anything that's remotely positive for working people because we know we have don't have a great track record of doing that. An interesting thing about this law is that it would actually affect a number of perhaps fast food workers who are contractors with the city. Um, if they're making the state's minimum wage of $8 per hour, the um, de Blasio administration estimates that they will increase their gross income to $27,310 from uh, $16,640 per year. So that's not chump 
chunk change, but still pretty low. And you have to wonder, why are so many damn businesses getting these massive subsidies from the city anyway? Um, because God knows the city probably spends way too much damn money on subsidizing corporations that don't need our help. Also to be noted, um, Los Angeles is also raising um, uh, wages for hotel workers, and that's another initiative on the other side of the country. So let's hope that uh, the momentum keeps going up and it's a race to the top for once instead of straight to the bottom. Speaking of unconscionably low minimum wages, in some places the minimum wage actually might be illegal. Scott Walker is well known to labor folks as the governor who stripped collective bargaining rights from Wisconsin public sector workers and kicked off the biggest labor protest the country had seen in decades. He survived a recall election and is hoping to survive another election this fall, but Wisconsin workers have been trying to prevent that. The latest challenge to his reign is a group of minimum wage workers who filed around 100 complaints saying that the state's minimum wage, which is now currently the federal minimum of $7.25 an hour, is not a living wage and therefore violates state law. Under this state law, the minimum wage must be a living wage, and if workers demonstrate through, quote, verified complaint that it isn't, the governor and the Department of Workforce Development have 20 days to take action. Workers with Wisconsin Jobs Now and Wisconsin Working Families shared their stories of living on $7.25 an hour, and as anybody who has ever tried to live on $7.25 an hour will know, it's not enough. Um, while it is not clear what will happen, Walker has been adamant for a, a long time that he is opposed to raising the minimum wage, but several years ago, in 1995, a judge actually did order the state's governor to raise the minimum wage in order to comply with this law. Um, there are also several non-binding advisory referenda on the minimum wage on November ballots in cities and counties in Wisconsin, so this will bring additional attention to Walker's obstinacy on the issue come voting time. So last week, I was a speaker on a panel discussion for the book Feminism Unfinished. It is, quote, a short, surprising history of American women's movements. Um, and it is sort of a pluralistic, um, wide-ranging look at the past century of feminism um, in America. It was written by Dorothy Sue Cobble, a professor of history and labor studies at Rutgers University, Linda Gordon, a professor of the humanities at New York University, and Astrid Henry. She is a professor of gender, women's, and sexuality studies at Grinnell College. It contains some interesting insights on women in labor in particular, so we're going to play you a few excerpts of those, and we're going to start with um, a little talk from me. I was actually one of the intro speaker, so I ranted a little bit about my um, angsty early history with feminism. And then um, uh, Dorothy, Linda, and Astrid spoke um, about their own work and their history on uh, women, labor, and where the movement is going next. The media was abuzz this week with talk about or chatter, rather, about Emma Watson's speech at the United Nations in which she asked, why is the word feminism become such an uncomfortable one? Um, which was interesting because I thought the um, framing of her speech as well as her presentation was um, aimed explicitly at, at making the word feminism much more comfortable. And that got me thinking about why we should expect uh, in this day and age uh, to for feminism to be comforting or for that conversation to be um, somehow um, soothing or reassuring or um, designed to not alienate people 
Um, and I think that's a tension that um, feminists and the feminist movement in all its various incarnations has always been wrestling with, both within itself, um, among its various uh, factions and strands, um, as well as intergenerationally, and also with uh, the wider public. So, um, and then I thought about, well, um, Emma Watson, well, she kind of invokes the, this, the whole trope of Harry Potter, and she's sort of in an interesting pop cultural position because she is sort of a, um, a girl and a child, and yet she's also this emerging woman, and she's sort of, we're, we're watching her um, as she defines herself in life and on screen for us. And, um, and I thought back to my first encounter with, um, I would say, the language of feminism, um, or with maybe the ideology of feminism, though I don't really think I had a name for it back then. And it, um, I remember when I was in eighth grade, um, I had actually seen an ad in Seventeen magazine. So yes, I'm beginning this talk with an anecdote about Seventeen magazine. Not a good way to start off a feminist um, lecture, but um, so that was me. Um, and and I saw an ad uh, soliciting uh, volunteer writers for a, a startup publication back then. Um, it was actually on a real piece of paper. Um, it was called the New Girl Times. And uh, they were asking for volunteers. It was a short-lived publication. I don't even know if it, how long it went on. But they were asking for contributors to their inaugural issue. And I was kind of a, uh, a budding writer. I was, I was working on my first zine at the time and just um, starting to get into the world of what I thought was publishing um, on my Mac Plus. And, um, and then I, I, so I wrote, and then um, I got an introduction to the magazine and, and sort of a preface on, on what it was intended to be as a project. And um, I was really struck by the sort of syrupy language that it invoked. And um, it was sort of a very girly, what I thought was girly, attempt at making feminism palatable and appealing to sort of the tween generation, which was, you know, in the 1990s, just sort of emerging as a consumer group then. Um, I wasn't thinking about all of this as I was 14 years old and looking at the, the introduction, but something about it struck me as off. And then I went to um, my computer and I, and I typed out a sort of an angry screed about um, why I was so offended that uh, this, this publication with the audacity to call itself the New Girl Times um, was, uh, you know, was trying to do this um, cutesy thing that they were taking women's issues and, and sort of dumbing them down and making them sort of fun and carefree and sort of teen magazine-like. And I actually, so I published it in my zine, um, and I did sort of like a mock-up, like I did sort of a send-up of the publication itself because I kind of took, I, I was into cut and paste then because that's how you did zines, if anyone remembers those. And, um, and I took the logo, which is actually a mock-up of the New York Times logo. And so I just had this like complete like screed making fun of this publication. And I, I was angry and then I sent it to the publisher of this publication and kind of like awaited her feedback and she wrote back with just like a single sentence and said, you know, I understand you won't be writing for us. I was deeply upset by what you wrote. Um, so that's that. Um, and then I think I felt a pang of embarrassment and I was sort of like, why did I do that? But then thinking about it now, I mean, I, I was an angsty teen and I was just blowing off steam and I think I wanted to make a point about why feminism was silly then. And now that I look back at it, it sort of 
strikes me as my first encounter, not just with feminism, but with also the ambivalence that surrounds feminism and kind of the internal conflict that is kind of inherent in it, especially in the way that people of my generation have inherited um, the movement and all of its political trappings and its language. So, um, and I think that even though I was sort of denouncing this version of feminism that I thought was feminism I was at the same time also claiming feminism for myself even though I didn't really know what I was doing and I wouldn't have called myself a feminist then and I, think, I can actually think of very few instances in my life so far in which I've actually actively stood up and had to proclaim that I am a feminist for anything um, so with that anecdote I just wanted to sort of think about that and maybe that'll help sort of situate where we are and maybe get you guys thinking about where each of you are in terms of um, at what point did you encounter feminism as an idea and um, in what ways have you kind of wrestled with how to define it for yourself and to take ownership of that that culture and that ideology um, because if there's one thing that the book really shows is that there cannot be one feminism and, and every time feminist Feminism as a movement is at a setback is when there's been one group attempting to um, to have the preeminent definition of what feminism is, right? So, um, and, and that's that's a historical question. It's a question of race. It's a question of, of sexual identity, and it's a question of um, the way we conceive of the world of work. And um, feminism is all of these things, and yet um, it's it, it also needs to define itself outside of them because in embodying all of those things it's also asserting the fact that it cannot belong to any single one of those things. So moving away from the New Girl Times, I just um, wanted to go back to sort of where we are in the contemporary sort of feminist debate. And I, I thought about contradictions that, that come up now that we see every day sort of playing out in the media. And um, I wanted to quote Brittany Cooper, her recent essay in Salon, and she was... Um, she was weighing in on this sort of perennial internal debate about whether feminism is dead, and we've spent lots of time in the book and also talking amongst ourselves about, yeah, I mean, of course, we all know feminism is not dead, otherwise we wouldn't be talking about it, but of course, like, we need to go through this, like, exercise, every, this, like, ritual cleansing every, every few months or years or so about, you know, is feminism dead or not? And so Brittany Cooper weighs in, and she says, um, and she talks about race and feminism, in a way that I thought was um, really, um, really trenchant. She says, uh, and she talked about the difference in the way uh, black women and, and white women will conceptualize feminism in their mind and how they relate to it in their everyday lives. Um, and she says, our feminism looks like an end to police repression of minority communities, access to quality public schools that do not expel our children for minor infractions, and an end to the prison industrial complex, which locks up far too many of our men and women, fracturing families and creating further economic burdens when our loved ones are released. We need comprehensive health care and access to abortion clinics, but we also need a robust mental health care system um, that can address long centuries of racist, sexist, sexual, and emotional trauma. We need equal pay, yes, uh, but we also need good jobs rather than being relegated to an endless cycle of low-wage work. White women's feminisms still center around equality. Black women's feminisms demand justice. There is a difference. One kind of feminism focuses on the policies that will help women integrate fully into the existing American system. The other recognizes the fundamental flaws in the system and seeks its complete and total transformation. 
and I'll leave it to you to figure out which side of that spectrum, you know, you find yourself um, identifying with more. And that's, of, of course, you know, it's, it's completely uh, your choice and, and a question of, of where you are in life. But I just wanted you to think about it as a spectrum, right? It's, it, I mean, she's posing a binary here, but it's not, she's not forcing anyone to choose. She's asking for an inclusive dialogue. And, and she feels that the more voice the other side is given, right, the, that, that often comes at the expense of the voices of people who have long been disenfranchised yes because they're women but also for various other reasons right and and we don't always think about that and and to be conscious of that is also part of what it means to truly be feminist and to claim that for yourself and in the book professor cobble she writes um, you know just as tax cuts for the one percent do not produce a higher standard of living for the 99 percent so the increased um, number of women at the top does not necessarily produce gains for women at the bottom there is no trickle-down effect and I think about um, what my, uh, my podcasting colleague Sarah Jaffe has said about the myth of trickle-down feminism, which is that uh, we believe in this neoliberal kind of laissez-faire um, mythology that there is sort of a logic of social justice that naturally flows out of capitalism, right? Or that, that, that the free market will come up with the most just solution, right? And, and that's, that's not really anyone's fault in particular. I mean, I think it comes from centuries of having it beaten into us that, you know, this is, this is the way it must be done and for real change to occur, then there's this sort of like march of progress that every single institution has to go through, whether it's the economy or domestic life or law or um, systems of, uh, you know, bias and subjugation. Um, and so two thoughts I want to leave you with now um, are these questions and conflicts that kept recurring as I was reading the book. Um, in all, all three of the sections that, that um, you wrote, um, you know, going through time. And, and, of course, we should wonder why we keep coming back to these questions because they seem unresolvable even after, you know, um, uh, more than a century of feminism. So um, one is protection for women versus absolute equality. Um, we saw this with early advocacy on women's uh, equality with the President's Commission on the Status of Women and labor feminism, which advanced kind of a socialist vision of feminism. Um, and there's this constant tension between identity of treatment, so-called, right, not being the same as actual equality, right? And, of course, actual equality not being the same as equity, right? And, and this goes back to the question of what is justice. Um, and, and the second question I wanted to leave you with is, is how do we prioritize rights, right? If, if we accept the fact that not everyone in the world is starting from the same place, and that's why we need social movements so that people can move from one place to another, right? How do we triage, you know, kind of the struggles that we approach? And that's not to say that we need to choose our battles all the time, but how can we have them coexist in harmony with each other without forgetting about one or pursuing one at the expense of another or in contravention of the other, right? So, um, you know, we had this between the suffragettes and the abolitionists over 150 years ago, and now we have sort of the intergenerational conflicts of third wave and the next wave of feminism or whatever the post-feminist world that we live in and of course, this reflects on global questions, right, of not everything is proceeding on some sort of teleological timeline of economic progress. And of course, the progress of one country comes at the expense of another in many cases. So, um, you know, again, is feminism really whatever we define it to be, as we've often been told, at least my generation has? Or is there a certain ideology of feminism? Is there a moral, ethical through line that we all need to keep in mind as we build this movement and make it more diverse? We now will have brief comments from the three authors of the book. Uh, Dorothy Sue Cobble teaches at Rutgers University, where she is Distinguished Professor of History and Labor Studies. 
Linda Gordon is University Professor of History and Humanities at New York University. And Astrid Henry is the Louise R. Noun Chair of Women's Studies at Grinnell College. I want to take a few minutes just to talk about the women that I write about in my chapter. Um, I think the agenda that they pursued for the 50 years uh, that I write about, it's actually the, a 50-year period that for a long time people called, uh, it was the doldrum years. It was, can you imagine this, a whole half century of feminism when there wasn't supposed to be anything happening? Um, it turned out there was a lot happening from the 1920s right into the 60s. So I want to say a few words about those women because I think what they fought for, which was an inclusive agenda of women's rights and social justice, is very much back on the uh, table today. And I think the way they went about it, their strategies also, uh, we should look back to and resuscitate. Okay, so I did want to save a minute to talk about some women and folks not in this room. I think we're at a very particular moment right now, a very promising moment. Uh, the New Republic calls this an unprecedented moment for feminism, a game changer, a tipping point. I think the question really is how we can take that enthusiasm that I see erupting all around. Uh, the surveys now show that women under 30, close to a majority of them, identify as feminists. Um, you know, celebrities are coming out of the closet every day to <laughs> claim um, themselves as feminists. Um, so the question really is how we can take that enthusiasm and move it to the next stage. Um, and I think that the women that I write about have something to teach us about this. They argued that it will take a movement. And I think that's part of what inspired this book. It's not just going to be about individual women making it into the corporate a boardroom or individual women moving into politics, it's going to take a movement. They also argued that it would take a diverse and inclusive movement, and so many of our panel's uh, speakers have made that clear. And most importantly, or equally important, is they argued that the women's movement should and will be about more than sex equality. It's about sex equality, but it also has to be about other issues. They looked to the labor movement at that moment in time and to the civil rights movement because those were the two huge progressive movements um, that were making massive changes. They uh, engaged with those movements. They also pushed for women's rights. Um, one reviewer has said that this was a group of women that were not feminists. Well, let me just go on record to say they were. Uh, they introduced the Equal Pay Act in 1945. They reintroduced it every year until it passed in 1963. Uh, they pushed President Kennedy to establish the President's Commission on, uh, on Women. 
that commission called for universal child care, uh, for legislation that would make it more possible for workers to organize and challenge corporate power. Um, a whole host of things that I think are very much back on the agenda. It was a revolution that was unfinished. And what's exciting for me is to see some of those things being back with us and being pursued. Um, I look around and we know there's progress on so many of these issues the living wage ordinances, paid parental leave campaigns, new attention to child care and elder care, fast food strikes, fair scheduling. So these issues are back with us. I think we also need to look to that movement uh, to think about how we create uh, movements that are inclusive. If we're going to make a better world for women, I don't think we can do that without making a better world for all. Thank you very much. When the left be first became a political term and a proud political term, and that was in the French Revolution, as I'm sure you all know, feminists were very importantly involved. And that has been the case in every progressive movement since then, and it still is. Um, Feminism has, of course, developed in uh, a variety of ways. Uh, there are even Republican feminists, and I have read that there are Tea Party feminists, and I recently <laughs> learned from my own research that there were feminists in the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and these come under the rubric of feminism because they believed in equality with men. Just like Dorothy Sue just said, I think the three of us came together out of a sense that we wanted to talk about a stream of feminism that had much larger ambitions. And that's pretty ambitious because even equality for, with men is pretty far from, from where we are today. We wanted to think through the career of multiple and very capacious definition of feminism over a fairly long period of time and to do that in a short book and one that is not particularly a scholarly book. There are not many footnotes. It's trying to, we are trying to write for a very general audience. Um, it'll be up to you whether we have succeeded in doing something useful with that, but I want to just try to enunciate uh, in some very general terms what I think the three of us came together about, and that is that we find feminists everywhere. Uh, sometimes they worked only in groups with worked in groups with only women, but often they were in groups with men. They were in Occupy, and they are prominent in the movement against climate change. They are in every anti-war movement throughout the world, but they're also in, in every anti-colonial and anti-imperialist movement, even when that has sometimes meant fighting. Uh, they, feminists actually led every struggle for child welfare, for public health. They led everywhere in the struggle for universal free education. They are working today to reform every religion on the planet. 
Uh, they have been the backbone of every anti-racist movement in the United States, starting with the abolition movement in uh, the 19th century. And today, women, together with immigrants, I think, are the best hope there is for a strengthened labor movement. I'm mentioning these movements that are not usually defined as feminist because, not because I want to diminish the importance of issues like rape or abortion or sexual freedom. But instead, I want to suggest that uh, I think what this all amounts to is a very radical statement, and that is that male dominance plays a part in all of the world's violence, injustice, and suppression of human potential. Feminists have never been perfect. Um, they never all agree with each other. Probably agreement isn't uh, something that they should even strive for. Uh, because I think there's plenty of evidence that a variety of different movements can have as much, if not more, of an impact than trying to universalize and pull things together. But the, uh, the last thing I would say, just harking back to uh, something that Michelle opened with, is that it's really a time to push to reclaim and make comfortable the word feminism, not because of what it is as a word, but because of what it is as a concept of how much uh, work there is to be done in the world. Anyway, thanks a lot. I grew up with a feminist mother and a feminist father, actually, um, and a feminist father who was also a feminist professor, so I had kind of an interesting role model there. And I grew up identifying as a feminist from a really early age. My mom said she could remember me using that term at six years old. So I am part of that generation who kind of took it for granted. And um, it was only actually later in college and particularly in the uh, early 90s when I started reading people like Katie Royfe, who I'm actually thinking about a lot lately with all the stuff about rape on campus again. I'm sort of thinking about generational shifts even from 20 years ago. I started realizing how intense my own relationship was to feminism um, and a kind of identification, uh, much like Jennifer's, to this earlier wave of feminism, the second wave, that I very much, you know, fell in love with, identified with, and sort of had that sense of, why couldn't I have lived there, you know, in that time? It would have been so exciting. Um, so that's sort of where I uh, started getting interested in this work. And uh, probably one of the, the things that's the most difficult about writing my section, and I think the reviewer in the Trib, Chicago Tribune review that came out yesterday called it a daunting task, was <laughs> to try to write about the present is very difficult. Um, it's difficult to know, you know where you're going to start it, where you're going to end it, how you're going to frame it. Um, and that was really, I think, one of the challenges that I had. Um, and ever since you know, we sort of wrapped the book and it was finished, more or less, you know, so many things keep happening. Um, just this last week, I feel like, oh my god, you know, I should have talked about that in the book. So it's, it's hard. Uh, it's hard to write about the present, I'll say that. So I kind of wanted to start with that. Um, we really did want to try to tell a different story and to disrupt that idea of the waves and, and disrupt the idea of a kind of white, middle-class, heterosexual uh, feminist history in which uh, it's very much focused on uh, entry into the corporate world, uh, equality with white men around um, 
pay equity and things like that. Um, and I hope, we, I hope we've done that. I think um, the idea of radio waves that Nancy talked about, I really like that metaphor as a replacement. It allows us to think about the ways in which feminism is out there on different channels all the time. People come into it at different moments. I think about my experience growing up in a feminist household, and yet I meet students today. I work with students who are you know, half my age or much younger than that who are thinking about feminism for the first time, who didn't grow up in families like that. So it's this weird thing where feminism is both old for many of us, but it's always new for many, many people. And I think that um, that's the waves metaphor kind of uh, prevents us from seeing that, the way that for many people they're discovering feminism today for the first time in the way that people describe doing with those click moments in the 60s. And I think the wave, the radio waves helps us to think about that, that we're kind of tuning in to different radio channels at different times. Um, one of the goals of our book, and certainly one of the goals, I think, of the chapter that I wrote, was to really show how feminism today is very decentralized. Um, it has many diverse forms. Uh, it's, the Internet has radically changed uh, the, the medium by which feminism is being explored. Uh, and it's not only diverse in its forms, but it's diverse in its agenda, um, as Michelle was saying. So on one hand, you know, we have a figure like Sheryl Sandberg, who's really arguing, again, a kind of similar message of feminism that I think our book was trying to critique. Um, at the same time, we have the much more radical, more progressive agenda um, uh, that Michelle alluded to in her discussion of the Brittany Cooper article in Salon that is really embracing a whole range of progressive radical issues that are not just about um, entry into the corporate uh, workforce. So again, that was one of our main goals. Um, as a professor, I think I, I was really struck by what Nancy said. I think as a professor, I love the idea of these tensions, that these are uh, irresolvable tensions that we have in feminism. And that's why I love teaching gender, women's, and sexuality studies, um, because it's, it's, it is irresolvable. We have these tensions. They're there from history all the way, you know, up until the present. I love that. But again, as an activist, it does make it hard, right? Where are we going to put our body? Where are we going to stand? Um, and we got to always think about that. One last point I wanted to make. Um, I'm thinking a lot about age and aging. Um, I'm now 48 years old. Uh, when I first started writing about third wave feminism and feminism in the 90s, I was considerably younger. And I'm now I, having students all the time who are very nostalgic for third wave feminism. They wish that they were you know, part of the riot girl movement. They wish that they could have made zines. Um, they want to know what it was like back then. Um, so I'm thinking a lot about aging and nostalgia. And I guess I just wanted to end and say that, you know, I think it's so wonderful to have these students here from Democracy Prep. They're the future of feminism, and let's just keep it going. Thank you. All right. That was, in very specific order, Belabored's own Michelle Chen, Dorothy Sue Cobble, Linda Gordon, and then Astrid Henry. So why are we talking about this feminist book on a labor podcast? I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about that, obviously. Y'all know me by now. But in particular, I am interested in, and this book, I believe, quotes me on the issue of feminism's class problem. And I think this book does a pretty good job of tackling that. I don't know. Michelle, what do you... 
um, as a historian and as someone who enjoys it whenever professors manage to write for a popular audience without getting too bogged down in footnotes and citations and actually um, can broaden a perspective of the movement and bring some critical thought to the issue. I thought it did a pretty good um, and sober job of um, reintroducing the um, the role of labor in the feminist movement and yeah. the role of feminism in the labor movement. I remember Dorothy Sue Cobble was remarking on when she first started studying sort of that first wave of labor fem- or sort of like this yeah. this black hole. Because the wave the theory, movement. of course, right. one of the things right. that they do in this book so well is sort of complicate Ex- this whole idea of right. waves. Exploding right. the wave theory. Right. Where, um, so, um, and the issue here, of course, is that um, Dorothy Sue Cobble, when she set out to study this period of feminism, it was supposedly sort of a black hole because right. there was nothing happened with women in America between, um, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and, you know, getting universal su- suffrage for, for women and like bra burning, you know, right. or right. whatever it is, whatever, whatever silly that, trope that what, people want to make up. But, right. um, so, and I thought it was really interesting because um, I, I, I'm fairly sure that um, one of the reasons that women's role in the labor movement during that period was eclipsed was because it was when the labor movement was at its most vital and men will instantly be referred to a ton more than whatever <laughs> women were actually at the helm in yeah. many of those movements. Yeah, and also it's really one of the fascinating things about that section in particular, and the book is broken up into three sections by each of these three writers um, that is roughly chronological order. There's a lot of history that even I didn't know, and I consider myself fairly well-read in American labor history, feminist labor history, feminist history, and yet there's still a whole lot in this relatively short section of this book that I was not aware of. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... One of the things that really struck me was how we're having the same damn fights that people were having a hundred years ago. Um, Not just in trying to get legislation passed or trying to get equal pay for comparable work is a very good point that she draws out in this, but also the fights that we're having within feminism go back to the 1920s and the fights over the Equal Rights Amendment and whether just sort of formal legal equality is going to be enough for women, or if that mostly serves white women who are already pretty well off. And the issues might be somewhat different now. Sheryl Sandberg admits that you might need a closer parking space if you're pregnant, but you see these breakdowns still about how certain kinds of feminism assume that things that are good for well-off white women are going to be good for all women, and the reality of, for instance, the reality of women in the workplace goes back before Rosie the Riveter and goes back before, you know, the 60s and 70s as well. Um, And so it's really nice to see this. I would like to hand this book to a lot of people. Pretty, I I mean, I would teach this in Feminism 101. um, Were I in charge of teaching a Feminism 101 class? But one of the things I actually want to go back to is something that you said in your talk. You brought up Emma Watson's recent speech at the UN and this idea of making feminism comfortable yeah. and comfortable for men in particular. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I think that uh, Emma Watson, I think, you know... Poor maybe, Emma Watson, yes. we're going to pick on her. To be fair, she was going in front of the world's most powerful people and trying to, you know, come up with a somewhat palatable, mediagenic feminist message, which is no small feat. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things that she posed to the crowd was, um, you know, she 
she kind of conceded that at times in her life, things that she has done as a woman have made people uncomfortable. And it was sort of half confession, half sort of like manifesto. And I think it really spoke to kind of the ambiguity that feminists and self-identified feminists and even just women in general have yeah. about coming across as too threatening and whether or not yeah. that will destabilize whatever modicum of, of privilege they've managed yeah. to, uh, you know, grab onto. And, yeah. and so it comes down to, you know... It, in terms of the way we behave in our everyday lives, right? Uh, mm -hmm. To what extent are we are we willing to fight those fights in our everyday lives? Yeah. And to what extent does feminism always strive to, you know, I mean, it's there's a sort of dissonance there because feminism, on the one hand, is always striving to remain relevant, right? right? Um, and then at the same time, by trying to make itself palatable, it's yeah. sort of inherently making itself obsolete, right? right. Or it's inherently yeah. tracking itself into a period of obsolescence yeah. as if the end-all be-all of feminism is to make it, is to put itself out of the job. <laughs> well, I mean, it should be, but that's another story. Um, right. But, but of course, right. we're so far from that. Right, right. <laughs> but I'm thinking about this in sort of, in a labor context, we talk a lot about how the U.S. labor movement gave a lot away and started sort of working alongside the bosses. In particular, unions tried to make themselves more palatable to the bosses, and we see that up until, you know, today with the value proposition language kind of things going on. And you have to wonder, do you sacrifice some of your power worrying about being palatable? Mm -hmm. I don't think that ultimately palatable, if we just ask men nicely enough, they're not going to give up male privilege. In fact, being nice is work. Being nice is emotional work that is done in many jobs. We've talked about this on this podcast, right? The emotional labor you are expected to perform when you work in a service profession, when you work in a caring profession. Um, this is work. It is work that is expected of women much more often. So a feminism that is worried about being nice is still sort of performing this labor mm -hmm. in a way that is, well, still uncompensated, but also it's not questioning that whole idea that women's job is to be nice and right. women's job is to ask nicely. Right. And I, I wonder about that. I, too, agree with Dorothy Sue when she says that a better world for women is going to be a better world for all. Um, I also agree with Linda's point that male dominance plays a part in all of the world's violence, injustice, and suppression of human potential. And I don't need male allies who come along only when I ask them nicely. I need male allies who realize that that's true and work to dismantle it. Um, yeah, and I think it, that's exactly the tension that feminism has always been wrestling with, which is this um, issue of, you know, the, the mantra of so-called, you know, the, the so-called, like, helm of feminism since the 1990s has probably been like, oh, the personal is political, right? Or that's the, yeah. that's the trope everyone likes to throw around. But of course, if the personal is political, when is the political personal? And then when do you start talking about structural, institutionalized, um, oppression and, and inequality that is built into the social structure. And then yeah. you start talking about things that are go beyond just male chauvinism and actually discuss patriarchy, right? right. Patriarchy is a social system. Patriarchy as it um, as it colors class, race, everything mm -hmm. else like that. And therefore, every other issue is a feminist right. issue. And so I agree generally with the thrust of the book, which is that feminism is many things, right, to many yeah. people, and we should look for a broad-based... But we can do that in a way that doesn't dilute the meaning of feminism, where it's mm -hmm. just like, 
women doing anything that has to do with women is empowering, right? right? And because, you know, often that is just a recipe for um, the systematic disempowerment of women, right? I mean, when I think about the so-called gains that have been made in the name of, you know, neoliberal economics by trading on this idea of women as the perfect docile workers, right? right. Everything that is done uh, to make uh, you know, women more palatable in that context is done at the expense of a broader movement for right. equity for yeah. all. So I think, I yeah. hope that's what the. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, and, and this would be a whole other podcast, but I, you know, I think the term the personal is political was supposed to mean that things like being sexually harassed by your boss were not your individual problem. They were, in fact, structural problems and structural problems that happen in the workplace and that need to be dealt with as a structural problem in the workplace. And on a final note, because I love this story, uh, former belabored guest Ellen Bravo likes to talk about a button that she had back in the good old days of what used to be called second wave feminism that said, my pay, not my consciousness, needs raising. Oh, snap. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. It is everybody's favorite time of Belabored when we say, ARG. I wish I'd written that. And uh, my ARG for this week kind of continues the theme that we were just talking about, which um, Bryce Covert, multiple ARG recipient, friend of the podcast, and one-time podcast guest host, has done it again, this time with a piece that looks at the one time that the U.S. did have universal child care. Spoiler alert, it took a World War II. The Lanham Act, she writes, was intended to fund infrastructure programs needed for the war effort, but that was interpreted to include child care. Amazing! Acknowledgement that child care is infrastructure. Um, according to Chris Herbst, an associate professor in the School of Public Affairs at Arizona State University and the author of a study of this act that prompted Covert's piece, this universal child care program was unique in U.S. history rather than applied just to low-income or unemployed women to help or push them into jobs. This program, which ran from 1943 to 1946, was open to everyone regardless of income or employment status and was extraordinarily cheap by today's standards, costing just $9 or $10 in inflation-adjusted dollars for 12 hours of care. Um, so not free, but cheap universal child care. Um, It came about, of course, because women were being pushed into the workforce in record numbers to take the manufacturing jobs that the men who were over there fighting the war had vacated. The program's history, um, it is worth noting, shows how quickly we could make universal childcare happen if, say, it was as big a priority as, oh, I don't know, bailing out banks. Of course. Or dropping bombs. Or dropping, or, well, yes, exactly. As soon as the war ended, this policy was rescinded and childcare was gone because, of course, what is acceptable in wartime was entirely too intimidating in the post-war moment when women were pushed back into the home and the baby boom was going on. Uh, Gender roles can apparently be loosened when it suits the priority of dropping bombs on people, but (laughs) otherwise, no. Um, But this history is also worth discussing just like most of the history we were just talking about on today's show because it proves that the history of feminism in the workplace is not one just of linear progress upward but that it's complicated sometimes wins go hand in hand with setbacks other times wins are yanked right out from under us 
So my ARG for this week is called Liberalism and Gentrification by Gavin Miller. It was in uh, Jacobin Magazine. It appeared online. And um, he explores the positive and negative side of gentrification. And, you know, we may all have a very sort of um, particular view of gentrification, and and we may in various ways be complicit in gentrification and um, be aware of it to varying degrees. But um, he actually lays out a pretty interesting historical and material argument about what gentrification is and isn't. And where liberals fall into this sort of um, taxonomy of the new urban landscape. Um, And he he goes back to Jane Jacobs, who um, many might not feel is particularly aligned with, um, you know, trends of gentrification, but she was actually one of the first people to advance this idea of kind of the uh, urban pastoral and the post-war, you know, neighborhood, uh, talking about brownstones, about social harmony, about, you know, perfect pluralism and kind of these small organic communities that develop in urban societies if you only let them and take out the big developers. And, and Gavin kind of explodes this theory, or, or at least, you know, poses a really um, interesting challenge to it by saying that, um, you know, in the face of rampant suburbanization and slash and burn renewal, um, Jacobs emphasized the attractions of urban life and all its diversity, revealing the support networks that lent resiliency and quality of life to neighborhoods otherwise deemed undesirable. But, um, you know, the the flip side of that was, as uh, he quotes the sociologist Sharon Zukin, he says, what Jacobs valued, the small blocks, cobblestone streets, mixed uses, local character, have become the gentrifier's ideal, right? This is not the struggling city of working class and ethnic groups, but an idealized image that plays to middle class taste. So even when you're striving for some sort of gritty urban authenticity, if you are in the role of a gentrifier, if you are complicit in that system, you're essentially kind of jettisoning what is actually real diversity or real pluralism for this kind of, um, you know, faux um, commodified idea of what urban life should be. And it doesn't really change the central power structure that's driving that. And I thought it was really relevant. Um, from a labor perspective, it's really relevant because these are the neighborhoods that workers return to um, every day. It is it is often, you know, the case that people do not work anywhere near where their neighborhood is, and, and the social fabric of their neighborhood is the one thing that keeps them together, especially as workplaces become increasingly atomized. And so now that we have this invasion of neoliberalism and real estate speculation and sort of this marketization of urban neighborhoods, um, that should make everyone think really hard about their role in the system. And everyone is quick to blame, oh, this or that hipster or, or whoever individuals um, you know, uh, individual yuppies for moving in and jacking up housing prices. It's really mu- part of a much bigger and more complex system. And um, he ends with this sort of interesting um, idea. He writes, uh, gentrification has always been a top-down affair, not a spontaneous hipster influx orchestrated by real estate developers and investors who pull the strings of city policy with individual home, po- home buyers deployed in mopping up operations. So he's basically arguing that it is corporate interest driving the real estate market, and the main goal is not to create a real neighborhood for anyone, whether they're affluent or poor. Everybody gets screwed, and the result of this is massive systemic racism and a general sort of um, depletion of humanity in neighborhoods, and, and that's basically bad for the entire civic fabric, and soon there won't be any left. That does it for Belabored Episode 62. We will be back again in two weeks. You should send us your stories of living on 725 an hour 
being a Teach for America teacher and or a student of Teach for America teachers, feminism. We always want to talk about feminism. And uh, if you just got covered by the new living wage law, let us know how it's going. And particularly if you are in the streets in Hong Kong, we would love to hear from you. Um, You can always email us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org or tweet at us at hashtag belabored. We will be back soon. You've been listening to Dissent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit dissentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored.